about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Excellent. My name is Mike. Um, many of you will know me, but it's also great to see a bunch of new and newish faces here. And if you don't know me, I look forward to getting to know you over morning tea. Uh, we've just finished our Galatians series, as Phil mentioned, and we are heading towards Easter, which is exciting, not just because it's the end of an 11-week term, for those that have children, um, but it's exciting because it's at the heartbeat of what we believe. And uh, so over these next two weeks, we are journeying towards Easter and following a few people in the Gospel of John, particularly in chapter 12. Um, is anyone familiar with this show? Yeah, a couple, a couple of very familiar, a couple of what, what's Mike talking about. Um, the Good Place is a TV series um, on Netflix, uh, and it's essentially about the good place, heaven, as it were. And if you're not familiar with that, that's okay, I'll just give you a brief kind of overview. And the reason why I'm drawing this to your attention is not just because I love cultural references to kind of religion and Christianity, because it tells us kind of you know, how people are thinking, but it also provides a good framework for us to be thinking today uh, by contrast. But The Good Place is all about a kind of a bunch of people who find themselves in the bad place, and um, they've got to better themselves. Uh, They've got to rack up some points, as it were, so that they might end up in The Good Place. It actually sort of presents um, heaven and hell, uh, not so much as kind of a religious thing, but as a kind of self-improvement thing, that if you kind of do good things, you get a bunch of points, and like a video game at the end, um, it's probably going to work out for you. Um, So if you end slavery, there's definitely some massive bonus points for that, because everyone agrees that's good. But if you ruin opera with boorish behavior, definitely minus 90 points. Um, How these points are established is not really kind of the point of the TV series. It's mostly about kind of ethical behavior. In fact, Michael Schur, who's the showrunner and creative writer for this show, when kind of asked, you know, what's, why isn't there a focus on God, worship of him, religion, because that's all absent from the show, he writes this, I stopped doing research on world religions because I realized it's all about versions of ethical behavior, not religious salvation. And I reckon that is a really interesting point of view. And I wonder if it's one of the key reasons that people are fed up with religion. I mean, if it's all about ethical behavior and self-improvement, crikey, why bother with institutions and kind of people telling you what to do and with all the misgivings of the church? Why just get on with scoring points? It'll all work out in the end if you keep self-improving, right? But I think, I think Michael's missed the heartbeat of Christianity if he included that in his research on world religions. But I can see perhaps why he might, at a superficial glance see Christianity as just another religion about point scoring. We have the opportunity to look at this little episode in the life of Jesus and see kind of people pursue good works, as it were, do good things. And we see how Jesus responds to that and how he points us to the real heartbeat of Christianity, which is not quite like that. So as we kind of head into this passage, keep John 12 open. Um, It's a beautiful little passage, and uh, let's journey towards Easter with that in hand. Now, as I said, kind of we're going to be looking at a couple of these characters um, in the story of Jesus here, uh, and particularly looking at how they respond to Jesus, whether they think they're responding to him or not. We get to see kind of how they work, tick, and the kind of good works that they're pursuing. 
So we've got Martha and co. They've put on a great feast for Jesus because, you know, Jesus did just raise their brother Lazarus from the dead. And that's the least you could do, right, for someone who does that by putting on a bit of a dinner party. So they're definitely doing some good stuff. Mary, she's at the centerpiece of this story. Um, She lavishes Jesus with incredibly expensive perfume. Jesus got to award some big points for that, right? Uh, Judas, on the surface, speaks out for the good of the poor although it's not quite as simple as that. The crowd, they're fascinated by the amazing doer of good works, and they want in on that. And the religious leaders, their kind of, their good is protecting religion. That's the good they're pursuing, even if it means killing off the threats. So did Mary do the most good? Is that the moral of the story? Do you get like 50,000 points if you do what Mary did and kind of break open a massively expensive perfume and lavish Jesus with it? Is that the moral of the story? Hmm, I don't think so. But Mary is going to be the paradigm for how we should respond to Jesus because she opens a window into the category of religious salvation that is quite separate to doing good. And we're simply going to follow uh, this story through looking at her and actually also looking, by contrast, at Judas. So let's zoom in a little further. Mary, Martha and Lazarus, as Naomi reminded us, are good friends of Jesus. Uh, We're told Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. And at a previous time, you might remember the story where Jesus is kind of speaking in their home. And uh, Martha, who's obviously got a gift and a passion for hospitality, is busy kind of, you know, making whatever and kind of setting the table. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Uh, Mary's actually chosen better here because she's just listening to me. That's kind of a reminder not to over-busy ourselves if it's at the cost of listening to Jesus. But a little while after that, and before this episode, their brother Lazarus gets quite sick. And they call out to Jesus, who's at a distant town, and say, actually, we need you. We know you do great healings. And if you came, that would be great, because your friend Lazarus and our brother is really sick. And Jesus takes his sweet time, and he dies. And Mary kind of says what anyone might be saying, knowing what Jesus is capable of, and being a friend of Jesus, and says, if you were here, Jesus, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Kind of, what, what were you doing <laughs> But that leads Jesus to say one of the great sayings of John's Gospel, just in the previous chapter. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And I tell you what, it is one of the greatest things to say that verse at a Christian funeral, that we might find hope in grief because we believe in the one who is the resurrection. And Martha replies, yes, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. See, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead as a sign pointing to the resurrection. And that's where we enter into this story because they're just so grateful for what he's done for them in raising Lazarus. And uh, that's where kind of, yeah, this, this great feast begins. But do you notice how John 12 doesn't start with, um, and so they were super thankful and set up a massive feast. That's kind of implied. It starts with six days before the Passover. Because John is pointing us to, as he's been doing all through his gospel, pointing to how what Jesus is doing are signs that are pointing to something greater, to the greatest good that we'll ever know. He's pointing to the Passover in this case, that ancient kind of ritual, celebrating that God passed over uh, in judgment, that those with the lamb's blood on the door would not be killed, would not be judged. 
And he's pointed to the fact that Jesus, the Lamb of the world, whose blood would be shed for us, would mean that God would pass over all who believe in him and not be judged according to what they deserve. That's what John is pointing us to. That's the frame he's building this story in. But the guests don't quite know the fullness of that yet. They sit at this kind of what would have been a lavish feast, kind of in a kind of the Middle Eastern world. The table wouldn't have been just kind of neat six chairs um, with kind of a little kind of knife and fork meal. It would have been this table that would have been lower to the ground and people would have reclined at it on their side perhaps and eaten with their fingers And their feet, which would have been dirty because they weren't wearing sneakers like me, would have been spread out away from the table to keep the dirty feet away from the good food. And there would have been so much fanfare and kind of enjoyment and laughter and music. It would have been beautiful. So there's Martha serving, still with her passion. Lazarus is there. People are still kind of head explosion. This guy was dead in the tomb just a little while ago, and now he's here, and we're just celebrating that. And Jesus, we're so thankful. And then Mary appears from kind of the back room of the house, and she's carrying this little jar this 500 milliliter jar of nard, the kind of the Chanel number five of the time. And people maybe might not have noticed what kind of was in the jar because it's just a, just a jar until she cracks it open. And the kind of the wafting fumes, the fragrance of this amazing perfume slaps everyone in the nose and stops the party like that. What is happening? And then she pours it all over Jesus' feet Kind of the, the role of the servant to clean the dirty feet of the house guests. Who is, what is she doing? But I guess they might have been like, well, she's so grateful. This is such a beautiful, intimate expression. But then she wipes her, his feet with her hair in this incredibly and kind of confronting, intimate expression of gratitude. The whole party stops, I have no doubt, as they look in on the relationship between Mary and Jesus the way Mary loved him and was grateful for what he did. But John doesn't record kind of any responses like, look how much she loved him or what incredible gratitude. Instead, he gives us Judas's response. And while that party has stopped dead to look in at the beauty of what Mary is demonstrating to Jesus out of love, there is Judas kind of arms folded, And he says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's like a year's worth of wages. Come on, Jesus. (laughs) And that's a good question, isn't it? Like, if it's about doing good, you could do a lot of good with a year's worth of wages. And you might expect Jesus, who cared deeply for the poor, to say, actually, Jesus has got a point here, Mary. I kind of don't appreciate this. (laughs) And I have no doubt the party stopped again. (laughs) Because this is getting, you're just tugged in an entirely different direction. From the kind of confronting intimacy that Mary demonstrates in love to this totally separate side question, which is a good question to ask, but just in a, such a different direction. So all eyes are on Jesus. What will he say? Will he chastise Mary? No. In classic Jesus form, he redirects the question. He says, leave her alone. It was intended Actually, you think he might say, I really appreciate this, I feel really nice. (laughs) But he says this, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Did Mary know that Jesus was going to die? I'm not sure. And we're not given that much information. 
We know that she thought he was the Messiah, along with her sister. We know that she might have guessed that something was about to happen, something significant. But that he would die? Hmm. Whatever the case was, Jesus takes the gift that Mary has given her and puts it into his grander story that's going to point to something greater than just good works, but the ultimate good the world would ever know. You will always have the poor, he says. So even caring for the poor, as good and as needed as that is, is going to be put into context of the greatest good. And all of this starts to get a bit clearer in terms of what Jesus is actually pointing to and what he wants from us. As John takes us to kind of the contrasting kind of heart dynamic, he takes us to Judas and what's going on because it's, Judas hasn't just asked a question. There's something going on inside of Judas that is in stark contrast to Mary. See, John can't help but put Judas in the wider and damning context of what he knew would happen because he wrote his gospel after, uh, after Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 6, he writes, Judas did not say this, i.e., why didn't you give this money to the poor? Because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, that's a damning claim to be a thief in the first place. But to use caring for the poor as a foil for his own selfish ambitions, that he might take that money for himself, wow, what is going on inside Judas that he would respond like that? Judas Iscariot, we're told at the very beginning, was later the one who would betray Jesus. For money. For a year's worth of wages? Kind of in the extravagance category of what Mary offered? Nope. For 30 pieces of silver, for like five weeks of pay. He has so sold out on Jesus. He is so missing something that we need to see the contrast of what's going on in the hearts of Mary and of Judas. See, Judas gives us a window into our own hearts because God sees what's happening in our heart. It doesn't matter if I stand up here and say we should do good things for the poor. Yes, we should. But Judas said the same thing and there was something so damning going on in his heart. And God sees that. I saw this play out in Scripture just a couple of weeks ago. I teach Scripture at Newtown, uh, Year 3 and Year 4 kids. And I love kind of the stuff that comes out of the mouth of babes. Sometimes it's confronting um, and the teacher needs to step in sometimes. But other times it's actually really beautiful. And we're looking at kind of the story of David. You know, little boy David who becomes king and the greatest king that Israel ever knew. And by contrast, Israel keep choosing all these powerful, handsome, amazing, kind of tall people. And God chooses little David. And the text tells us that God sees the heart. Men see what's happening on the outside. And we're sort of unpacking that, and that's liberating, right? And the kids were like, yeah, actually, it is liberating. Because it doesn't mean we're judged on our performance and kind of sometimes we're not handsome and we're not, we haven't got it all together and it's actually really nice to know that God looks past that stuff. I was like, yes, absolutely. But then it kind of dawned on them that God actually saw everything they were hiding from everyone else too. And this one girl pops up and she says, it's like behind every one of our actions, even our good actions, we have bad motives sometimes. I was like, out of the mouth of babes. That's the human condition. 
Judas is kind of at the extreme end of demonstrating what happens when the human heart is wayward and our motivations that don't please God actually play out. We saw that in the passage from Isaiah clearly as well, when God laments, you have not called upon me. For God was the God of Israel and he made his presence known to them in all kinds of amazing ways. He provided for them, he sent their prophets, he raised up kings. But they only had eyes for what was good for them. They had taken their eyes from God and turned them back on themselves. Judas, despite having Jesus right in front of him, did not see Jesus. He saw what was good for him, that he would sell out the author of life for 30 pieces of silver, because that was good for him. God laments in that same passage in Isaiah, you haven't brought any sacrifices, you've not demonstrated any gratitude, you've not listened to anything I've said, instead you've just brought your sins, and they're piling up. When life's just about my good, I'm blinded to everything else, even the cross of Christ. And I'm especially blinded to any greater good that might cost me. So what's the moral of the story here? Should we do good for good? That's got a nice ring to it. Well, sure, but that's not the point of the story. Should we give to Jesus at great cost and without selfish motivation? Great, but also not the point of the story. All of these are byproducts of what is ultimately good. And the only reason why Mary is a paradigm for the right response is because it's a personal response to Jesus. She sees what Jesus has done and she says, Thank you. Judas is not responding personally to Jesus at all. He's responding in front of Jesus to himself. Mary responds in faith, expressing itself in gratitude. Judas responds out of his selfishness. See, it's not about doing good for your own good, or any good for that matter, but being good with the one who is ultimately good. That's what it's about, being good with the one who is ultimately good. Mary's personal response, her eyes on Jesus, will cause her to follow Jesus for the next six days until he's led to the cross. And like every sign in John's Gospel, even the raising of Lazarus, her brother, will all point to the confronting cross that does not look good. It does not look good. It looks ugly and macabre. But in the cross... What we see is our need for a greater good than just the worldly goods we know of. For that greater good, that ultimate good, is that we might be right with God again. Because there's no amount of points that we can rack up that God will say, nice one, Mike, you can finally come on board. I mean, how many points, how how good do I need to be for God to be impressed by me? Instead, he sees my heart and even the good points I might be able to score in the eyes of others. He sees my inwardness. He sees my Judasness. And yet he says, Mike, I love you and I forgive you and I've paid for the cost of judgment. I've paid the price in the blood of Jesus. And I tell you what, I cannot help but keep my eyes 
on a God who does that for me. And I cannot help but respond in gratitude and in faith. That faith is going to express itself in gratitude sometimes, like Mary did for Jesus. Sometimes it will express itself in tears through trial, in joy, in good, in kindness and in mercy. And ultimately, John's Gospel will finish with the statement that everything that's written in his Gospel was written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The point is not, have you done enough good? It's, do you believe in the one who has done good for you? And let every good thing flow out of that. Some of us need to hear this this morning as a reminder that it's not about your good. Because some of you this morning might be coming heavy laden as you try and do good and struggle. Some of you will be feeling heavy laden out of guilt because of your not-so-good stuff. And now I'm saying that God sees all that. But you need to hear that because even though he sees that, and in spite of that, he has loved you to the cross and back. And he's forgiven you. And so I want to say, keep your eyes on Jesus. Some of us need to hear this this morning because our good works are distracting us from the simplicity of responding to Jesus. Some of us need to hear this this morning, that we might actually, at great cost, take some of the things out of our life that we might keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Some of us this morning are serving at great cost, and it's coming out of a love for Jesus, and I want to say, fantastic, keep it about Jesus. Don't look for my approval, just keep it about Jesus. You know, it strikes me that when Mary cracks open $60,000 worth of perfume, that's not, we don't know kind of if that's at great cost to her, but that she did that so extravagantly. For her, it must have just been put in context of, I don't, I don't, this is a joy to do this. Even though it costs me greatly, it is a joy because I love you, Jesus. And if that's you this morning, just keep loving Jesus. For others here, keep rejoicing in the fact that your good is put into the context of Jesus and his good. And just keep let that overflowing. I saw that actually play out last week. Junior Drivers, the kind of one of our community initiatives that runs down at Urco, put on an afternoon tea for people who can't normally make it on a Monday morning when it runs. And so families came along and I got to meet a whole bunch of dads who sometimes work or mums that sometimes work on a Monday and got to hang out with them. We just had this family afternoon tea. It was beautiful. And uh, I got to invite people to Easter. And I said, look, the cross is a strange thing, is it not, in 2019, that we could call that good. But come along to Easter that you might hear why it's good news, why it's the best news. And as I got chained to someone afterwards, um, he said, oh, I used to be a youth leader. I used to go to church. I was doing the whole thing and just totally gave it all up. And I asked him, asked him why, and he sort of shared his story. And I said, what would, make you, what would make you come back? I said, I hope you don't mind me asking that, but what would make you come back? And he sort of stroked his chin and said, you know what, maybe something like this. <laughs> because what he was seeing was the goodness of people who love Jesus overflow in community. It's not that that good 
works is our focus. It's that of the overflow of our love for Jesus and what he's done for us. And as he experienced that, my hope is that just like in John's Gospel, that might be a sign that points him to the ultimate good, to Jesus. We don't just want to build a good sense of community because of good works. We want all that to be an overflow of the Jesus that we know and love because of what he's done for us. And we want people to, to see him and to personally respond to him. Brothers and sisters, as we head into Easter, let's take off everything that hinders us, that we might keep our eyes squarely on Jesus and keep the Christian walk about personally responding to him. Whether you're feeling heavy laden or overjoyed, bring it all before him and let everything overflow from that. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, especially in that goodness made known to us in Jesus Christ, that while we ought to fall under judgment because of our failings, you have forgiven us and given us new life. Father, I pray for everyone here this morning that as your words move out into this world, as people hear the good news of Jesus, that, that you would lift them up, that you would take away their burdens of guilt, of frustration, of wearisomeness, that we would all, with simplicity, look to Jesus and respond to him for all the days of our lives, we pray. And we just want more people to experience that as they come into contact with our community, that they might see good things, not for our sake, but for yours. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.